A common question that we as human beings ask a lot, it's a little one-word question. We ask this question a lot. Why? Why? That can be asked in all kind of contexts, can it? If you're a parent, for instance, how many times have you heard the word, why? And how many times have parents maybe even said, why? Why, Lord? (laughs) But I'm not really talking about that per se. Uh, There is just a lot of why questions that we have just as human beings. Even as we get older, I don't think that goes away. We want to know why something works the way it works or uh, why this is going this direction or why did that person do that? Why did this happen to me? There's all sorts of questions uh, or all sorts of context, rather, that we can ask the question, why? Well, today we're going to ask a why question, okay? Right here at the outset of the sermon, we'll ask it, and then we'll try to spend the rest of the time that we have together today trying to answer that why question from the Bible, okay? Here's the question. Why does God save sinners? Why does God save sinners? Have we given that much thought? Uh, It could be a tremendous help to us in our Christian life to ask that question and then look at God's answer. Why does God save sinners? If I'm a Christian, if you're a Christian... Make it more personal this morning. Make it more personal right now in your own mind. Why did God save me? Why did he save me? And when we ask why questions, there might be a long string of elements to the answer, right? Um, There may be multiple levels of answers. I think about the little child that may ask, you know, My son asked me the other day, why is it raining, Daddy? Well, this is what I said, but here's an example uh, situation. Well, it's raining today, son, because there's enough moisture in the clouds. It got full. It released this rain. And the child says, why did it do that? Well, because enough water had evaporated from the earth to fill the clouds full, so to speak. And the child says, why? Because that's the way the water cycle works, son. And the child says, you guessed it, why? And then sometime or other, maybe the mildly annoyed parent just says, I don't know, son, that's just the way God designed it. That's not a bad answer, I guess. Maybe you should have led with that one, huh? Why is it raining, Daddy? Well, God designed rain, and he wanted it to rain today, so he made it rain. (laughs) But my point with that little illustration is that if you ask enough why questions, you'll eventually get back to the root of something, right? We might say you get back to the ultimate purpose behind that something. And so we're going to ask ourselves a question today. Why does God save sinners? Why has God saved me? I'm just saying it in different wordings. 
For what purpose am I saved? And our mind, maybe your mind, is starting to churn, is thinking. And hopefully we say at some point, well, maybe the Bible tells me why he did it. Instead of me speculating as to why he did it, maybe the Bible says. So maybe it'll tell me something about his ultimate purpose behind this wonderful plan to save sinners from every nation and tribe and tongue and language. Maybe it'll tell me why he saved even me. And maybe I can find out this why behind our salvation. And maybe if I find that out, maybe, just maybe, it'll have some profound effect on my life. Maybe it'll cause me to see things a little bit differently in light of that information. And so, let's open our Bibles together and try to answer that question. Why does God save sinners? We're going to open to it in just a minute. We might say it like this. Instead of a question form, we could say it in a statement form. If you saw the announcements back here, that's kind of what I've done with the title of, excuse me, of today's message. It's called God's Ultimate Goal in Salvation. God's Ultimate Goal. What was God's goal when he came up with this Wonderful plan of redemption. What was he going to accomplish through this? And I'm here to tell you that God wants us to know the answer to that question. How do I know that he wants us to know? Well, because he's told us. When he tells us something in his word, he does it for a purpose, doesn't he? He wants us to know that bit of information. He tells us so that we might know and that it might affect us in the way that he designed it to affect us. Okay? Well, the next question is, where in Scripture does it tell us this ultimate purpose in, about our salvation? And I think that it's hinted at, at least, all over the Bible, all over Scripture. But there's one place in my mind that sticks out perhaps more clearly than any other passage. So we'll turn there. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We just sang a song that was based on that chapter and we didn't pick that song for no reason. It fits very well with, with the message today. So we're going to read together Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. It says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God... To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. I think you could probably spend an entire lifetime just meditating on these verses and doing a deep dive into these verses. (laughs) Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 specifically. This thing is bursting at the seams with glorious truths, isn't it? But for the purpose of today, I want to just focus our attention on a particular phrase that the Apostle Paul uses here. And he uses it not once, not twice, but three different times in this passage. And you may remember from past studies that we've done here that verses 3 through 14 in your English Bible is one sentence in the original language. One sentence. So Paul uses this same phrase three different times in one sentence. I think it must be something that the Spirit of God doesn't want us to miss. You think? I'm talking about that phrase that's found in verses 6 and 12 and 14 when it says in verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace. And then again in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14 again, to the praise of his glory. So let's try to understand together what he's teaching us here. This entire section that we just read is about the spiritual blessings that we have that God the Father has given us through his Son and his Spirit. And all of these blessings are, like I said, they're all worth a deep dive on and spending lots of time on each one. But for our purposes today, we're just going to have to skim them. I hope this isn't the first time you've considered these blessings. But we have to skim them today. So skim back through the passage with me. Look at your Bible as we kind of skim back through there. So here's the spiritual blessings that he mentions. He chose us first. He chose us to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world, it says in verse 4. He also predestined us to be adopted into God's family, to become his sons and daughters, if you will. That's verse 5. He also redeemed us through Jesus' blood and has forgiven us all of our trespasses, verse 7. And he has given us an inheritance, verse 11. And he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14. 
Those are just some of the spiritual blessings that God has given us in this gospel that we believe. And in short, verse 3 says this, In Christ He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There's nothing that we lack in Him. And what a list of spiritual blessings that is. All of these things, by the way, describe what God has done for sinners who come to His Son, Jesus, in faith. It wasn't us that did the choosing of Him, was it? It was Him doing the choosing of us. Verse 3, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. It wasn't us predestining ourselves to be adopted into God's family. This was His doing. He predestined us for adoption. And it wasn't us redeeming ourselves, right? It was Him redeeming us. It wasn't us giving ourselves an inheritance. It was Him giving us the inheritance. And it wasn't us somehow sealing ourselves with the Holy Spirit. It was Him sealing us with His Holy Spirit. So, in short, that's just God sovereignly saving sinners. That's it. But all of those things, as I said, they're not the primary focus on this message because today we're looking at why did God do those things? Why? So notice with me what the end goal was and is when he gave us all these incredible blessings. It's right there in the passage. I'm not making it up or trying to pull some fancy textual stuff. It's right there in the passage. It was all to the praise of his glory. And all to the praise of his glorious grace. So here's the thing I want to emphasize in this message. Yes, we are the beneficiaries of some massive spiritual blessings in salvation. God designed it that way. We become children of God. We get an inheritance. We have all our sins forgiven. We're given the Holy Spirit who resides within us. We are the beneficiaries of all those awesome things. But the ultimate goal of salvation is not to benefit us. It's all to the praise of His glory. It's all for Him. Did you notice that? It's all for Him. We could talk about all the times in Scripture that God says that He's going to do something, quote, for His name's sake. Or He says, for my own name's sake, I'm going to do this. In other words, for my own glory, I'm going to do this. Not because you deserve it or you're special, per se, in yourself. Because I'm going to do it for my own name and my own reputation and my own glory. He says that all over the place in Scripture. God does what he does ultimately for his own glory. But that doesn't even go quite far enough. Because our passage here, according to Ephesians 1, 6, 12, and 14, it's not just for God's glory. It's for the praise of his glory. Do you see that? It's for the praise of His glory. And there it is. That is my big point with this whole message that I hope will stick in our minds. We were saved for the purpose of giving God praise 
for his glorious grace. Let me say it again. We were saved for the purpose of giving God praise for his glorious grace. If we are not constantly giving God praise for our salvation, we are falling short of the design. If we're not living our lives as an act of worship, we're falling short of the goal of salvation. God saves us so that we might praise Him. We were created to praise God, to worship God. That is the ultimate goal, to worship God truly in our hearts for who He is and what He's done. When I finally saw that, I was blown away. God saved me so that I would become a praiser of Him. Giving Him constant glory. Does that change your view of salvation at all? It changed mine. It changed the way I look at life in general. Changes the way I look at a lot of things. Knowing the purpose behind what God is doing. In the words of John Piper, he says, God's goal is not simply that the glory of his perfections shine, but that we find God's glory praiseworthy. We're not doing what we're designed to do if our salvation doesn't result in us viewing Him as utterly praiseworthy. I'm not talking about faking it. not talking about hypocritical praise, but really feeling the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to enjoy Him. Half, when our praise is half-hearted, it gives away what we really think of His salvation. It gives away what we really think of God when we're half-hearted about praising Him. The praise that God calls for is praise from the heart, right? We are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus said in John four twenty three, He said, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Isn't that amazing? The Father is seeking worshipers. He's not uh, seeking people who will honor Him with their lips while their heart is far from Him. He condemned that kind of fake worship, didn't He? He's looking for genuine praise from those that He saves. And they will give it. Willingly. Let's look at some other passages about how God created us and saved us for the purpose of praising and worshiping Him. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. First Peter 2, 9, follow the thought with the writer here. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There it is again. God saving us so that we would proclaim his excellencies. Turn to another passage, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and verse 21. Isaiah 43, 21. <clears throat> this is talking about God's chosen people, Israel. But the concept here is such that if it's true of them living in the old covenant, it surely is that much more true of us living under the new covenant. Look at the way God speaks about his people here. He's talking about his people, his chosen people, and he says, Isaiah 43, 21, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. The people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. God made them and us that we might declare his praise. That's our purpose. We have a whole uh, song book in the Bible, the book of Psalms. And what are the Psalms saying? Over and over and over again with various phrasing, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all you, everything, you name it. Why are they saying that? Why are those psalmists writing that, you think? Is it not because the ultimate goal that God has in mind when he created us is for worshiping him, to praise him? He is pleased when we give him praise for his glorious grace. Now, we might stop here and just clarify something. Somebody may say, or maybe you're thinking in your mind, or maybe you have thought in the past, well, that, that sounds kind of egotistical of God, doesn't it? He just wants people to praise Him? Going so far as to create them for the purpose of praising Him? Not too sure about that, somebody might say. Well, there's a man named C.S. Lewis that, helped us, that helps us think about that a little bit more in depth because he was somebody who struggled with that very thing. He struggled thinking of this very thought. And I quoted him earlier, but John Piper talks about C.S. Lewis in his book called Providence. C.S. Lewis, at first, he sort of complained in his mind that the way the Scriptures command us to praise God seemed to him like, quote, a vain woman who just wants compliments. That's what it seemed like to him at one time. And then John Piper writes this about him. But instead of turning away in disgust, Lewis looked more deeply, as he did with so many things, into the reality of praise. Oh, that we all would penetrate through words to the reality behind them. And here is what Lewis found. So now this is... Me quoting John Piper, who's quoting C.S. Lewis. Okay, you following? <laughs> He's quoting C.S. Lewis directly now. The most obvious fact about praise 
whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment, note well, he says, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else that we value. Did you catch that? This is me interjecting into the quote now. He said the whole problem with his way of thinking is that he was absurdly denying what we delight to do, which is praise whatever we think is valuable. Right? Do you find that to be the case? Whatever we think is valuable, we praise it just naturally. So I'm continuing with Lewis's quote now. Just a couple more sentences to finish his thought out. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. It's that the delight is incomplete till it is expressed, end quote. To me, that is fascinating and beautiful. <laughs> God commands us and creates us and saves us to praise Him precisely because the giving of an infinitely beautiful gift will cause us more enjoyment than any other thing imaginable, and that enjoyment and delight in Him as our ultimate treasure will not be completed until it flows forth out of us into praise to that thing. You know? You, you follow me? So God, in an infinite act of grace, gives us Himself. And found within Himself are pleasures forevermore. And once we really get what we have in Him, we become delighted in him and we become enamored with him and we so delight in him that we just can't help but praise him with words with actions with decisions with any other way that we could possibly think of to praise him and that's the beauty of God's design he designed us and saved us to praise him and we don't have to fake it or just give him because he's somehow begging for praise, well, I guess we'll give it to him. It doesn't have to be fake because he is the something that is truly praiseworthy and delightful 
And so it flows naturally from those who have been saved. I hope this is making sense. When we, uh, when we read the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus Christ held up to us in these various forms. He's our high priest. He's our substitute. He's our atonement among a lot of different things in Hebrews. He's not a tough, aloof, way out there somewhere high priest, but he's one that sympathizes with our weaknesses, it says. He's a merciful high priest. And then after telling us all those things about Jesus, at the very end of the book, the writer says this. Through him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of what? Praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. After all that doctrinal teaching, there it is again. When I read that, I said, there it is again. Saved to praise. After all that wonderful doctrinal teaching on who Jesus is and what he's done, we get to the end goal. What should all that doctrine cause us to do? Let us offer up a continual sacrifice of praise to God. That's what he says. So I don't know if there's anybody here who's struggling with uh, or maybe have struggled in the past with their purpose. What's my purpose? What's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to be doing? Why, why am I here? Well, I hope we'll see today from God's word, here's your purpose. To praise him. That's it. To praise God in every way possible. For his unspeakable gift of salvation. I'm just going to close with some reminders. That I hope will just help us carry out our God given purpose. To praise him. Some reminders to help us do that. To gear our minds if you will. To cultivate it in our own lives. If we're having trouble or seeing it as a as uh, an area that needs improvement. Because I anticipate, at least I hope, in your mind you're thinking, after you heard what the ultimate goal of your existence is and what the ultimate goal of your salvation is, I hope that we're all asking ourselves that. Well, how can I do that better? How can I cultivate a life of praise to God then, if that's what I'm supposed to be doing? Here's just a few things, only a few. There's so many Number one, read your Bible diligently and pay special attention to the various aspects of the glorious grace that God has shown you in Christ. In other words, when you read your Bible, take special note of all the places that deal with God's grace to you. Make a journal if that will help you. Write it down. Keep them in a notebook. Take them down in your phone. Highlight them in your Bible. Whatever method you want to use. But when you come across something in Scripture that God has done for you out of the grace that, he's, that He has, those things that He's done for us in the Gospel, even if it's something familiar to you, it doesn't have to be, oh, I've never seen that before, I'm going to highlight it. 
It may be that you've seen it a thousand times. Highlight it anyways. Go back to it regularly. If it's something he's given to you, write it down. Go over it regularly. That will help us cultivate praise in our hearts. That's just doing what the old hymn said. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Right? If the, if the truths of the gospel are what fuels our praise, and that is what we find in Scripture over and over again, then we must feed ourselves those truths all the time to fuel them, to keep the fire going. We need them. Desperately, we need them. I think there's a sense, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, but I think there's a sense in which we forget the gospel every night we go to sleep. And we need to remind ourselves every single morning of what the gospel says, of all the things that we have in Christ. Psalm 90, verse 14 says this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's like the psalmist is saying, in our weakness, Lord, we, just, we don't wake up just filled with satisfaction over who you are and how glorious your love is. We don't do that by default. We need to be reminded and filled with it afresh every day. So this morning and every morning, Lord, satisfy us with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So there's one way. Read your Bible and pay special attention to what the Lord has done for you. Don't read it for a check mark or to say I've done it or whatever host of other reasons we can all fall into, me included. But we read it to see not only this, but truly this. What has God done for me in Christ? And that will be like gasoline to your praises. Number two. Another way to cultivate in your own life, in your own heart, and these are all reminders to me just as much as you, of how to cultivate praise, a life of praise. Number two, think often of your eternal home. Think often of your eternal home. You know, if you get caught up looking around at this world all the time and not considering the next ever you're going to be like Peter when he tried to go out on, those, on the water. He started looking around. He saw the waves and he just he sunk down in despair. But if we're constantly looking up to Jesus, and if you're constantly reminding yourself from Scripture, not things that you're making up, pep talks for yourself, I'm talking about things from Scripture. If we're constantly thinking of these things and what is awaiting us after this, That type of meditation and that type of thought will fill your heart with wonder and love and delight for our Lord who made those things a reality. You really, if you're a Christian this morning, you really are going to live in eternal happiness and joy and bliss with God. 
It's not just something we say, right? This is real. This is a reality that he's bought for you. So think of that eternal home often. And when you come across those passages in Scripture, write those down. When you come across passages that talk about what's coming after this, the new heavens, the new earth, and what that's going to be like and what God is going to do for us in that place, write them down and then refer back to them often. This will cultivate an attitude of joyful praise to God for what you have in Him. Just one more this morning. Number three. Regularly talk affectionately about Christ to others. We all need help in this area. I do. Like Hebrews 13 said, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do we talk about Christ to others? And I'm not even talking about evangelism per se. Evangelism toward unbelievers. Hopefully we're doing that as well. I just mean, do we talk affectionately about Christ to our brothers and sisters? Hearing others speak about Christ affectionately will do all of us a lot of good. Listening to that type of talk, it stirs our hearts. It stirs our affections over what God's doing in other people's lives. And just how he is, you know. He's doing something for somebody in their life. And you said, I caught a taste of that at one point in my life. Or maybe even now. And you say, that sounds like our God. And your your praise comes out. That sounds like him. And when others hear us. Not only are we listening to others speak about Christ, but when we tell about Christ, when they hear us talking that way, it stirs their heart, and it just plays back and forth. And it turns into one big encouragement and building up exercise. That's one reason why we need to be a part of a local church like you are, to come together regularly to see and hear What others think about Christ. You can see it on others' faces when they sing that gospel song, for instance. You can hear it in their voice when they talk about how glorious Jesus is. That warms us, doesn't it? It warms us, it edifies us. And I can tell you from personal experience that I have been cold in my heart many times. And then I hear a sermon or I hear another believer start talking about what Christ has done in their life and what what truths they're seeing in the Bible as they study it. And my emotions are, I think, righteously provoked. I've been cold-hearted and participating in singing with others and There's just something about lifting our voices up together to God in praise that just, it just causes our hearts to be lifted up to heaven and just to think higher thoughts of God. And we're just moved to praise Him more. Those things provoke me. I don't know if they do you. But I think that's what partly it's talking about in Hebrews 10 when it says, 
that we are to be meeting together constantly. Don't neglect the meeting together. And it says we are to be provoking one another to love and to good works. Hebrews 10, 24. Provoking one another doesn't always have to mean that it will be some sort of uncomfortable confrontation over some sin. That may be necessary at times in the family of God in a loving family way, right? That may be necessary. But what provokes us to love and to works more is just to see other people praising God with their whole hearts. It's hearing others' testimonies of God's work in their life. It's hearing somebody just passionately tell what Jesus means to them and how they're weak, but he is strong. It's sharing what God has done in someone's life whom you've witnessed to, perhaps, and just saying, y'all, listen to what happened. I've been sharing the gospel with this man, this woman. Maybe they're not even saved yet, but maybe they're, they're asking more questions, y'all. God might be doing something here. That causes us to praise God more, doesn't it? Sharing these things. When we share those things with each other, it just kindles in us good and right emotions and feelings. And those things convey the preciousness of the thing that we're praising. Christ is worthy of all our praise. Amen? My heart is... Uh, it's always warmed when I read these verses right here. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. Let me read this to you. You're welcome to turn to it if you want to, but I'll read it quickly. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Mm. We've been talking about God's ultimate purpose and salvation, and we've mainly been applying it to ourselves in the here and now, but what better place to see the ultimate purpose in action than looking at what's going on in heaven? In heaven, they're praising God and the Lamb for His salvation. In addition to what I just read, they're saying things like this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12 If worshiping and praising God is God's ultimate goal in salvation, we ought to see it there in heaven being carried out, and we do. And one day we'll join them. So, Let's carry out our God-given purpose here too. We're saved to praise. And uh, when we delight in God to the point where we're always thinking on Him, meditating on Him, thinking about what it says in the Scriptures about Him, praising Him to others, when we do these things and praise is just being exuded out of us, others catch a glimpse of His glory from that. 
And God uses those things to bring more worshipers to himself. That's the purpose of missions and evangelism, right? What is the purpose of missions and evangelism anyways if it's not to bring more worshipers to God? Someone said, missions exist because worship does not. We take the gospel to places where God is not worshipped with the hope that God will save them and do what? Make them into worshipers of him. The Father is seeking worshipers. The worshipers are all over the world and they're worshiping everything except God. We were at one time too, weren't we? Till he saved us. And it's our privilege to know God and so delight in him and his gospel that we will just happily tell others how glorious he is and how supremely satisfying he is in contrast to all those other things that they're trying to get satisfaction from. So I'm closing. Church family, let's work to cultivate attitudes and righteous emotions toward God by just staring at him in his word, finding him to be who he is, the most satisfying and beautiful thing that there is. Because when we do that, not only will we be happy, but we'll be carrying out our God-given purpose that God has had from eternity past to create and save and choose and predestine and redeem and to forgive all for the praise of his glory and of his grace. Let's pray together. Father, we long to have right emotions toward you and your gospel. Lord, to the extent that we are unfeeling toward you and your truth, we will not commend the gospel to others. Help us to better know what we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to talk of Christ. Help us to think on Christ. Help us to meditate on him and rely on him. May he be to us like nothing else. Nothing will be able to be compared to him. May he not be just one of the many joys in our life as if he's on the same level as our hobbies or whatever other quote-unquote enjoyments we have. May he tower over all other interests in our lives and help that Lord to be genuine and not produced by us but be produced by the power of your spirit working in us make it true lord make it true of every person here by your holy spirit's work in jesus name i pray